The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 7 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC7. This is Secret Church 7, Episode 6. Now we come to the church and spiritual warfare. Again, Old Testament to Christ to the New Testament church. What's different and what's similar? This is where we need to ask the fundamental question. Do we fight spiritual warfare exactly as Christ fought spiritual warfare? That's an important question. And what I am convinced the New Testament teaches on this and a variety of other issues is that we address issues that are similar to what Jesus was addressing. They are similar issues. However, we address those issues in different ways. Oftentimes in very distinctly different ways. I want to broaden your thinking for just a second. You're going to wonder where in the world this is going and what this has to do with spiritual warfare. But I just want you to think about, for a minute, about how Jesus addresses similar issues and then we're supposed to address the same issues but in totally different ways because there are distinctive differences between us and Christ. Think about paying taxes. They're asking, does your teacher pay the temple tax? They have this conversation. Jesus says to Peter, go to the lake, throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch. Open its mouth, you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it, to my, give, them, give it to them for my tax and yours. So for Jesus, how did he pay taxes? He caught a fish and paid the tax. Now that works well. Like I wish there was a transfer automatic over into this. That all it took to please the IRS was a great Saturday at the lake. But that is not what we see. Are we supposed to do the same thing? Catch a fish and pay a tax? No, Scripture teaches us to work a job and pay the tax. Matthew 22, 16 through 22, among other texts, teaches us, commands us to pay our taxes using methods we use to get that money. Scripture obviously never commands us to order a fish to give us our tax money. Instead, Scripture clearly teaches that we're responsible for acquiring that money ourselves. Now, think about catching fish. They're having a hard time catching fish. So Jesus just says, why don't you go out to this area, throw your boat, throw your net over the side, and you'll catch scores of them. And so they do. Jesus worked this way. Jesus commanded the fish to be at the side of the boat, then eat. If only it were that easy. Command the fish to be, just get on the boat, and when you decide you want them there, Tell them to be there and bring them in. Not the same for us. Wait forever for the fish to come anywhere near the boat. Then eat. We're supposed to find food still, but the means by which we do it is different. Walking on water, Matthew 14. Jesus expressed faith by walking on top of the water. But are we ever commanded to do that? As an expression of our faith, go out to the lake and try it. No, for us, we express faith by walking through deep waters, difficult times, trusting in God and keeping our focus on Christ. There's a shift in mode here. Think about feeding the hungry. What does Jesus do in John 6, feeding the 5,000? He reveals himself as God by miraculously providing food for the needy. He prays and the food is there. Obviously, not the same for us. Now, it's not that we're not supposed to feed the needy. Are we supposed to feed the needy? 
Yes, but for us, we pray to God as we work to provide food for the needy. Why don't we just use supernatural means to feed the needy today? Why don't we go into impoverished villages and just pray and expect the food to come? Because God has said, Ephesians 4, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, sacrifice your resources to help those who are in need. Sacrifice your resources to help those who are in need. That's what he's commanded us to do. Pray to God as we work to provide food for the needy. Think about speaking, the way they reacted when Jesus spoke. We've got to realize Jesus had an inherent authority. He could say, I say to you this, and whatever he said was the word of God. Not the same with you and me. Us, not an inherent authority, but a derived authority. I have authority to speak the word of God only in so much as I am saying what this book says. I don't say, I say to you tonight, and this is authoritative. Absolutely not. This is authoritative. And my authority to speak the word of God is only, it's totally tied to, to this word and its authority. It's derived from God in his word. Think about forgiveness of sins. With Jesus, he had authority to provide for the forgiveness of sins. You and I do not have that authority. Instead, we are ambassadors who proclaim the forgiveness of sins. We proclaim his forgiveness. We're still confronting the need for people's forgiveness. But there's a totally different mode shift here. When it comes to raising the dead, John 11, Lazarus, come out. Jesus never preached a funeral. Every time he started one in the New Testament, it's over. <laughs> Not the same with us. It's Jesus, what you've got with raising the dead is both, both an authoritative command and a gospel invitation. There are times where he says to a dead man, raise, be raised and live and do. And then there are other times where he invites people to repent, to trust in his father and you will live forever in the resurrection and the life. Now for us, we don't do the former, we just do the latter, gospel invitation. We call people to eternal life. We are addressing this issue, resurrection from the dead, but we're, we're commanding people to receive the gospel, not telling them to rise up and walk. Think about controlling the weather Mark 4, Jesus speaks and the weather obeys. He speaks and the weather obeys. But us, we pray and God responds. We don't, we don't say, clouds, go over here. Wind, waves, stop. We don't speak like that. We're not told to. We're not commanded to. We pray and God responds. Think about healing the sick. Think about healing the sick. And I've got Matthew 4, 23 through 25 written there, but there's another scripture in there. I apologize for that. But the picture is, in Jesus, there was a command for healing. He had authority to command someone to be healed, and immediately they'd be healed. But then we come to the New Testament, and it's not the case. If so, somebody come up to me and command this cough to come out of me. No, we do intercession for healing. And we gather around, James 5, pray for one another in the church, and as elders in the church. So these are different instances. Now, think about spiritual warfare. This is the story I put in here of Mark chapter five. Jesus casting demons out of individuals. This is something Jesus does here and in other places. But here's what I want you to notice. We are never commanded to cast demons out of individuals. Never commanded. The only example where this might be the case, some would point to Luke chapter 10, which Jonathan led us through a couple of weeks ago here in an incredible way. 
And there are huge implications of that text for understanding our mission today. However, at the same time, there are distinctives in that mission that are different from us today. They were going to a specific place, a specific time, specific territory, at a specific time where the kingdom of God had come and was there in the presence of Christ. We don't see in the New Testament, in the Gospels, we do not see a command to cast demons out of individuals. In fact, once you get past Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, you don't see it again at all in the New Testament. People casting demons out. This is a picture that we see in Christ and we see in some of his apostles in the book of Acts. But when you turn the pages from, page from Acts to Romans, you hear nothing about casting demons out of people the rest of the time. And the silence in the New Testament thunders here. There's nothing. I emphasize that because I want us to at least realize at this point that in New Testament spiritual warfare in the church, it is not primarily about casting demons out of people. I'm taking it a step further in a minute. But what we see in the New Testament in the church when it comes to spiritual warfare is not an emphasis on exorcism and incantations and binding and loosing and casting out this or that. Instead, we see a clear, consistent, bold emphasis on fighting the good fight of faith and repenting ourselves and calling others to repentance. That is spiritual warfare. It is the same picture we have seen in the Old Testament. It is the picture we have seen in Christ fighting moral evil in the Gospels. And it is the picture we see of the church in spiritual warfare. Never commanded to cast demons out of individuals. This is where the battle of spiritual warfare is waged. Just think about this. Revelation chapter two and three give us a picture of seven different New Testament churches in the middle of battle. And it's interesting. Again, I wish we had time to go through it. But these are churches. Don't miss this. Church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Laodicea that was that were birthed in the middle of pagan occultic idolatry. All kinds of demonism that was rampant. And interestingly, when Christ speaks to them, we do not see at any point in Revelation 2 or 3, as well as the rest of the epistles in the New Testament, letters to the churches, things that we see today in conversations about spiritual warfare among Christians. Let me give you some examples. And these are not just out there kind of things. Some of these are very reputable, supposedly reputable pictures. One article from the Los Angeles Times in our day. Under the militant banner of spiritual warfare, growing numbers of evangelical and charismatic Christian leaders are preparing broad assaults on what they call the cosmic powers of darkness. Fascinated with the notion that Satan commands a hierarchy of territorial demons, some mission agencies and big church pastors are devising strategies for breaking the strongholds of those evil spirits alleged to be controlling cities and countries. Fuller Seminary professor Peter Wagner, who has written extensively on the subject, led a summit meeting on cosmic level spiritual warfare Monday in Pasadena with two dozen men and women, including a Texas couple heading a group called the Generals of Intercession and an Oregon man who conducts spiritual warfare boot camps. Many of these writings begin to talk about walking around a community, rebuking Satan in Jesus' name at every turn specific places, calling 
demons out of. There's a variety of methods for casting out demons. One deliverance handbook says, in deliverance, we're released from the spirits and desires that twist our heart and deceive our mind. What is a spirit? Anger is a spirit. Irritation and self-pity are spirits. Hatred, jealousy, illness, worry, deception, arrogance, fear, rebellion, resentment, phobia, shyness, conceit, confusion, sadness, accusation, addiction, pride, legalism, homosexuality, complaining, lying. They're all names of spirits. If any time in your life you have ever expressed any such spirit or desire, then you still have it hidden inside unless you have been delivered of it. So they claim that you need to experience deliverance by binding or casting out that spirit. To do that, they say, simply say this prayer. I bind and rebuke you, spirit of, fill in the blank, in the name of blood of Jesus, and I command you to leave me now totally and wholly. Thank you, Jesus. Some go deeper, speak directly to the spirit, then cough and blow it out. What is that about? (laughs) Coughing is often necessary to release the spirit. Cough as necessary until it is out. If the spirit manifests disruptively or violently, it may be commanded. Do not allow the demon to speak and alter the words of this prayer. If it's altered, the demon doesn't have to obey it and the demon knows this. This is the kind of stuff that is out there. It's very prevalent. And there's variations on this. Some of them more excessive than others. But I want you to think about when Christ had an opportunity to speak into seven churches that were in the middle of this kind of pagan occultism where all kinds of spirits were rampant. What did he say? To the church in Ephesus, a church surrounded by idolatry and immorality. Ephesus had the temple of Diana, Artemis, scores of eunuchs, thousands of prostitute priestesses who came together in just a total sea of music, orgies, drunkenness. Many followed in the line of the Nicolaitans, sexual immorality. And Jesus says to them, not, he does not say, you won't find it in Revelation 2. Cast out the demons of sexual immorality and idolatry. Organize prayer walks around the temple of Diana and bind those spirits. No, he says to them, repent of your sin. Revelation 2, 5, repent of your sin and reclaim your first love. Love me. This is where spiritual warfare is fought in the heart and the affections of your being. Then in Smyrna, a church that was facing persecution, they were facing direct satanic opposition, being persecuted. What does Jesus say? Bind Satan and all of his forces? No. Instead, we see here, what we see in other places in scripture, God was sovereign over this persecution and he was using it to bring about his purposes. So Jesus says to them, trust God in faith and persevere in patience. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life. That's spiritual warfare. Pergamum, to a church dwelling amidst Satan's throne. It literally says that you dwell in the middle of Satan's throne. This was a tough city. Huge altar to Zeus. Gods of, there's one God of healing in Pergamum associated with snakes and the way you would be healed of your diseases is you would go and you would lay on the floor and let the snakes crawl over you. Like, I'm staying sick if I'm in Pergamum. (laughs) This place was messed up. (laughs) Satan's throne, yet in the midst of it, God does not, Christ does not tell them to go around binding and rebuking Satan. Instead, he says, be pure in thought and be pure in deed. That's how you fight the enemy. 
in Thyatira, a church engulfed in false teaching. False teacher, symbolically called Jezebel there, who was leading all kinds of people with their teaching into idolatry and immorality. Jesus didn't tell them to cast demons out of Jezebel or bind Jezebel. Instead, Jesus said, listen to truth, holy truth, and commit to holy living. This is spiritual warfare. Revelation 3, Sardis, to a church that was basically dead. It was dying spiritually. And the letter to them simply says, turn from sin and turn to Christ. This is how to come from darkness to light. Philadelphia, church opposed, literally says, opposed by a synagogue of Satan. There were unbelieving Jews who were opposed to the gospel in Philadelphia. They were persecuting believers. They were facing, the believers were facing temptation to shrink back. And Jesus said, hold fast to my word and proclaim my name. Hold fast to his word, proclaim his name. This is where the battle of spiritual warfare is fought in the proclamation of the gospel. Don't miss it. They were not supposed to go around Philadelphia praying down all the spirits in Philadelphia. Instead, they were to go around Philadelphia preaching the gospel. And that was spiritual warfare. Laodicea, to a church that was lukewarm, had all the money and all the trappings. And Christ said, you're poor and naked and you think you're rich, but you're empty. And he says to them, seek your treasure in Christ. Clothe your lives in Christ. It's great imagery there and fix your eyes on Christ. The picture in all seven of these churches, all set of them in the midst of intense spiritual battle in the first century. And Jesus never once tells them to engage in spiritual warfare by casting out, binding, rebuking, or calling down demons or engaging in high level spiritual warfare. Instead, over and over and over again, he says, repent, turn to Christ, be pure, be holy, repent, proclaim your first love. Then proclaim your first love all over the city that surrounds you. That's New Testament spiritual warfare. Now, some might say at this point, and we're getting a little bit obviously into where we're going to be going at the end, but some might say, well, you don't understand. There's a lot going on in different parts of the world today, and you just, there's different things in the world today that warrant different types of spiritual warfare, warfare. But that's just the point I want to make. If there was any place that necessitated the kind of spiritual warfare stuff that we hear so prevalent in contemporary Christian discussions of spiritual warfare, this was the place. But even in the middle of this place, Jesus is simply saying, trust in God, repent of sin, and proclaim the gospel. So, when we think about New Testament spiritual warfare, I want us in our minds, and I hope this isn't too disappointing, but I want us in our minds to come back and realize that what we're seeing all over the New Testament is spiritual warfare in action. But it's not this glamorous, fanciful, this and that, casting and calling out and binding. And No. It's a constant pursuit of Jesus Christ. And turning from sin over and over and over again. And a proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And spiritual warfare is happening in the middle of it. When you look in the New Testament, what you will see in terms of spiritual warfare are two primary actions. How does the New Testament say we should fight spiritual warfare? Number one, stand firm. A defensive posture. Look at Ephesians 6. It's one of the main texts we're going to look at the rest of the night. Remember, this is right in the middle of Ephesus, Temple of Diana. All these gods and goddesses being worshipped, immorality and idolatry. And Paul says, stand. This is what you do. 
This is so anticlimactic, Paul. Like, give us something a little more exciting. And four times he says, stand, underline it. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand. Underline it there. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. A couple verses down. So when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Second time. After you've done everything to stand. Third time. Stand firm then. Spiritual warfare is standing in resistance to the devil. It's standing against temptation and the attacks of the enemy. Listen to 1 Peter 5. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So what do you do? Resist him standing firm in the faith. Resist the devil. When the Bible, New Testament is talking about spiritual warfare, this is the picture. Stand, resist, be firm, steadfast. And James says, submit yourselves, resist him, and he will flee from you. The promise of victory does not get any stronger than that. Stand, brothers and sisters, and the devil will flee. It's a promise. Want to fight spiritual warfare? Stand firm. And then second, that's the defensive posture in spiritual warfare. Second, press forward. An offensive posture. Attack enemy territory. And this is the picture in the Great Commission. And this is where the whole passage in Ephesians 6 leads to. Don't miss it. Pray that when I I open my mouth. This is the end of this picture of the armor of God that we're going to think about tonight. Pray that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it fearlessly as I should. Paul's ministry was about aggressive proclamation of the gospel. So there's two primary actions in spiritual warfare in the New Testament church. One, we stand firm, resisting the devil's schemes. Number two, we press forward, attacking enemy territory. And there's three primary fronts where this battle is raging. The Bible teaches three ways or avenues through which evil is attacking us. Three avenues, fronts. Number one, the world. Number two, the flesh. And number three, the devil. World, flesh, devil. What I've done, I've listed, you'll see all three of these in Ephesians 2. You'll see all three of these in James 3. And then when you look at these two passages in 1 John, you'll see evil described as the world, the flesh, and the devil. Think about it. When it comes to the world, the world is around us. The world in Scripture is referred to as the environment in which we live. All the ungodly aspects of culture and our values and traditions and customs and philosophies that surround us in this world. All the worldview assumptions that we so readily accept We need to see how the world has a profound influence on the way we think. Don't we realize this? We can go to a gathering of the church Sunday in and Sunday out and we can go through the motions and never once think that maybe Christ wants to redirect the way we raise our kids than our non-Christian neighbor next to us. Maybe Christ wants to redirect the way we spend our money than our non-Christian neighbor next to us. Instead, the world and the church look just like one another. And we just don't, we don't think about the fact that the world is attacking us so subtly around us and we are buying in to where our lives are very, in many ways, indistinguishable from the world. The world is around us. Second, the flesh is within us. We have in us still sinful nature, an inner propensity to do evil. This part of us that was tainted by the fall, it's still in us. Galatians 5 talks about that. 
So you got the world around us, the flesh within us, and then Satan is against us. Evil spiritual being and his demons intent on perpetrating evil in our lives. Now I want you to think about these, these three together. World, flesh, and devil, Satan. The Bible differentiates these three strands of evil without dividing them. Without dividing them. The Bible does not say we got three problems. World, set of problems. Flesh, set of problems. And Satan, devil, set of problems. Instead, kind of like three cords and a rope, they are together. They're different, but they are overlapping together over and over and over again. <clears throat> They're coming together. In addition... The Bible addresses people, not demons. Just like we saw in the Old Testament, this is what we're going to see in the New Testament. When the Bible talks about spiritual warfare, we are on center stage and demons are backstage. This is one of the dangers, just by the way, of Frank Peretti and the like. I know it's just fiction, but we start taking fiction. We bring it into truth in our minds. And the danger is with novels like that, they put demons on center stage and that is not how scripture pictures spiritual warfare. Scripture is putting an emphasis over and over again on people and people's responsibility, people's responses, the world, flesh, and the devil, not on demons. All three of these working together against man. Thomas Brooks, he's one of the books that I had recommended. Thomas Brooks wrote, and he talked about how the flesh is the hook. It's just a picture, just an image. The flesh is the hook, the world is the bait, and Satan is constantly baiting the hook in our lives. Constantly baiting the hook in our lives. What this means is, we'll stop, pause here. Spiritual warfare, then, is a lifelong struggle, not a one-time fix. Spiritual warfare is not about a trip to someone who can cast demons out. Spiritual warfare is about a holistic battle that involves our entire lives and our struggle with sin, contending for our faith, advancing the gospel. This is where I want us to see that spiritual warfare and discipleship go hand in hand. And our sanctification is is on the front lines of spiritual warfare. And if we give ourselves to making disciples, we will be on the front lines of spiritual warfare. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.